Father, this morning we come into your presence and we give you our utmost attention. Lord, we pray that your spirit would speak to us and that we will not be distracted, Father. But Lord, we could learn these lessons and rejoice over them. That we are reading a book that is inerrant, without error. A book that you actually have written. Lord, I pray that we could consider not only its uniqueness, but its practicality. Lord, we want to come to know you through this book, and we know that this is the way you've chosen to reveal yourself. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the Bible is an outdated book written by a bunch of men with no practical value for today. Or, it is indeed a book written by God, not by man. And it not only is valid, but is very, very practical for today. Now, perhaps all of you have heard that first statement at one time or another by people who are what I call pseudo-intellectuals. People who pass themselves off as scholars. And you know it's become the in thing to get down on the Bible. It's become the, you know, the new trend to be a skeptic and look very skeptically at biblical truth and do, you know, call yourself an intellectual and you're intellectual if you don't believe in the Bible and you're dumb and naive if you do believe in the Bible. That's become the fashionable thing to be like, it seems, in modern times. But I do believe in the Scripture, and I'm speaking to you who probably believe that the Bible is inerrant, that is, without error. And I hope today to show you one of the reasons I believe the Bible is indeed a book from God and is very practical. And I would also remind you of a Scripture that Paul said in Romans concerning those who would knock the truth. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And they worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. And also, as the Scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So while some people would say the Bible is foolish, and you're a fool if you believe it, the Scripture says if you don't believe in God, that man is a fool. I don't care how many degrees a person may have behind his name. If he professes himself to be wise outside of biblical knowledge, the Scripture calls him foolish. Now, as I said, this is a different kind of a Bible study that we're doing this morning. And we're going to talk about prophecy. And when I speak of prophecy, I'm not just speaking of the rapture and the tribulation period and 666 and Gog and Magog. That is prophecy, but it's only a part of it. Actually, prophecy would be best defined as history written in advance. History that is written in advance. God knows the end from the beginning, and so He calls things into being, and He writes about them before they even come to pass. In fact, the Scripture often names people before they're born. Tells who they are and what they will do before they even came into existence. And Jeremiah and Daniel are one of those books. Now, I have heard by some people that prophecy is an unhealthy kind of a subject to embark on. Oh, don't talk on prophecy. It's not practical at all. But let me remind you that the very first Bible study Jesus gave after his resurrection was a prophetic Bible study. 
When he was on the road to Emmaus and he was with his two disciples, he did not choose to reveal himself directly, but through the prophetic scriptures. It says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he revealed unto them all the things concerning himself that were in the scriptures. And so I believe that the scripture is very, very practical for today. And I believe it's a healthy thing to actually study. The times that we live in are times of uncertainty. A time when absolutes are challenged constantly. When the in kind of thinking is that there are no absolutes, no universal base of right and wrong. And as Christians, I think it's great to know someone who is unchanging and who never fails. And I hope that this morning you will walk away with a greater love for the book that you're reading called the Bible and a greater appreciation for the God who wrote that book. Now, this morning we want to look at a couple things. First of all, the prayer of Daniel. And then secondly, the prophecy that was revealed to Daniel. And then third, we want to show you some practical points about that. It says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord, given through Jeremiah, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. This begins the prayer of Daniel. And Daniel, if you read the book of Daniel, was unique from the very beginning. He was sort of an unusual character because he stood alone in seeking God while the whole nation turned against God. Now, Daniel was a young Jewish boy. He was in Jerusalem and he was taken captive probably as a teenager, brought to Babylon where he served the rest of his life in Babylon until the day he died in a foreign country. Imagine being a teenage POW and living in a country that was your enemy till the day you died. And so Daniel always lived there, became promoted actually in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. Daniel stood alone. Now imagine being far away from home, away from God's people, and away from the temple worship. Well, it would be easy to fall, wouldn't it? You'd think that would be the perfect place. If you want to backslide, I mean, that's ideal. Your Christian friends aren't around to see you. You don't have the close fellowship and the intimate ties. You're in a foreign land that is known for idolatry anyway, and you're all alone, basically. It would be so easy to fall. But the Scripture says in Daniel 1, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion that the king was giving him. Daniel from the beginning as a teenager purposed in his heart to walk after God and to pursue after the Lord, contrary to everyone else who is around him. You know, it's sort of easy to live the Christian life among Christians. That's not too hard at all. It's easy to live the Christian life and shout hallelujah in church. And to have all the right words to say, all the little Christian words to get along. But what about Monday through Saturday when you're out of church and the pressure of the world is upon you? The pressure to compromise, the pressure to lower your standards. When you're slugging it out in the trenches of life, then it's tough. 
Daniel stood strong. And I want to encourage all of you today. Dare to be a Daniel. Especially those who are young, in the teenage years. Use Daniel as your example. One who was taken away from God's people, but in the midst of idolatry, in the midst of a world that was against God, he stood his ground. He purposed that he would serve God. So we are the salt of the earth. And Daniel certainly was an example of that. All the way through his life, I encourage you to read the whole book of Daniel sometime and see that in his personal life. You know, Jesus did call us the salt of the earth, but you know salt doesn't do a whole lot of good in the salt shaker. Salt only does good when you lift and turn over the salt shaker and sprinkle it out on the food. And this is the salt shaker this morning. And it's good that we come together to get saltier. But the real effect is when we're out in the world and pouring salt where it's really needed. And Daniel was a fine example of that. Now, his commitment was rare. Because in the midst of adversity as he was growing up, in the midst of challenges in the kingdom of Babylon, he stood his ground to serve the Lord. There is a verse in the Scripture that Solomon wrote. He said, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, and I want to encourage you who are young, seek the Lord while you're young. Learn God's ways while you're young. You've got your whole life to live ahead of you. Don't waste it on the world. Spend it for the Lord. You know, Dwight L. Moody was once preaching at his church in Chicago. He came home after an evening meeting. His wife said, well, Dwight, how many people came forward to receive Christ tonight? He said, oh, two and a half. She said, do you mean... Two adults and one child? He goes, no, two children and one adult. He says, you see, those children have their whole lives to spend for God. The adults have spent half of their life already for the devil. Now they've got half to give to God. And so while you're young, serve the Lord with purpose of heart like Daniel did. You've got your whole life. Don't waste it on the world. Be like Daniel and spend it for the Lord. Later on, Daniel was called to interpret a dream. As you remember the famous dream Nebuchadnezzar had, Daniel came in and interpreted it. Nebuchadnezzar was so blown away that he said, Daniel, you're wiser than all of my magicians and soothsayers. I'll make you the ruler over all the wise men of Babylon. So he was. While he was in that position, people were jealous of him. Because here's this young Jewish kid from another land and he's ruler over all of us. So they wanted to trap him. And this is what they said, his enemies in the court. They said, you know, we can't really nail this guy on too much. He's pretty perfect. There's only one thing we could get him on, and that is his relationship with his God. So they went to King Darius. They said, Darius, sign a decree that makes it illegal for anyone to pray to any other God except the gods of the Medes and Persians in Babylon. Darius signed the decree. And so they watched, that is his enemies, into Daniel's room because they knew that Daniel made a habit of praying every single day. And sure enough, time came around, Daniel opened his windows, set his face toward Jerusalem, and as was his custom, the Scripture says, he began to pray to the Lord. And because of that, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because he served God more than the false gods. But God delivered him. And here, even after the lion's den, in his older years, in Daniel chapter 9, we see him with the same purpose of heart as an adult because he started young and he purposed to serve the Lord. And when he was older, he was just serving God with all of his heart. And so we see him praying again in verse 3. 
I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, he put that on him as an act of humility. Sackcloth was an act or a symbol of humility. It was that itchy kind of uh, black goat's hair that people would put on. Now, Daniel was very rich and wealthy. He didn't have to put on sackcloth, but he did it as an act of humility. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. And we have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from Your precepts and judgments. And we're not going to read all of the prayer. But he confesses the sin of his people. And then in verse 17, Now therefore, our God, Hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine in your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and for your people who are called by your name. Now, what a powerful prayer. What a prayer of humility. And this was Daniel's secret, his life dedicated to prayer. Every time you see Daniel personally, it seems he's praying. And you know, I believe prayer is one of the greatest, if not the greatest privilege God has given to man. The fact that I can come and talk to the Creator of the universe amazes me. What even amazes me more is that He listens to me all the time. Now, I don't know anyone who listens to me all the time. Even my wife, God bless her, doesn't listen to me all the time. But God always listens to me. He's always wanting to hear from me. His ear is ever open, the Scripture says, to my cry. That amazes me. And what's even more staggering is that I can come any time I have a need. I don't have to make an appointment with God. I don't have to call a secretary. I don't have to call Gabriel on the phone and make up an appointment for two months from now. I don't have to plan in advance. That's wonderful. Now imagine if Ronald Reagan was going to have dinner or lunch with you. And he called you up and go, Hey, this is Ronnie. How are you doing today? Why don't you come over to my house and we'll have dinner? Well... Even if he invited you, you'd have to make a special appointment. And you'd have to be escorted there and so forth. With God, you can come anytime you have a need, day or night. What a glorious privilege of prayer. Now, I also think that one of the greatest mysteries among the angels who are in heaven is the fact that man can be given such a high privilege of prayer, and yet he takes so little advantage of it. I'm sure the angels just go, what are these guys doing down there? God has given them access into the throne room. And that person's in a dilemma and he's not even taking it to God in prayer. And I'm sure they you know, want to pull their hair out when they see us sometimes or pull their feathers out, whatever. But I'm sure that it's a mystery to them as they see men taking so little advantage of this privilege of prayer that God has given to them. Now I want you to notice something in verse 2. It says, in the first year of the reign... That is of Darius. I, Daniel, understood by books 
the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord, given through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah, which gave the exact time of the captivity of Israel in a foreign country, 70 years. Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, and he was reading that. Now, Daniel was reading it after 67 years of captivity. There was three years left. He was reading the promises in Jeremiah that says, when you're in captivity and you call upon me and you pray to me, I'll answer you and I'll bring you back into the land. And so it was because Jeremiah was reading the scriptures. He understood by books, the time of the captivity through the prophet Jeremiah, 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And so it says, In verse 3, I set my face toward the Lord God, which means I walked away from everything else that I thought was important in my life and I gave all my energy to praying because I found something in the Scripture that was important and I began to pray for it. Now, here is the great secret to Daniel's life. Not only prayer, but prayer that is based upon the Scripture. You see, Daniel went through the Scripture and he found a promise that was written by God in it. And he took this promise and began to pray for it. And this is one of the great secrets to unlocking God's work in our lives. You see, the Bible and prayer go together. God wants fellowship with us. Fellowship doesn't mean one-way communication. That is, Lord, good morning. I give my life to you. I consecrate my day to you. In Jesus' name, amen. See you later. That's one-way conversation. God is probably saying, would you just sit still for a while so I can say a few words to you? And so it's important as we open our Bible, God speaks to us. As we pray, we speak to God. And it should be based every day, I think, on what we read. We come across a certain portion of Scripture. We find a promise in it for that day. We apply it to our lives and we begin to pray for it and act it in our lives. You see, The Scripture reveals the promises of God. Prayer enacts the promises of God in our lives. And so what a beautiful, dynamic combination. Reading the prophet Jeremiah, understanding something from the Word, and then beginning to pray for it. Now, that's the prayer of Daniel, and we'll come back to that at the end. Now let's look at the prophecy. And turn over now to verse 20. Now, this is where I beg your utmost attention. In fact, I would take notes if I were you. Otherwise, this might become confusing. In fact, that's why we put the outlines in your bulletin so that you can take notes on them and take them home. Verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my Lord. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and he said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment went out and I have come to tell you for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Now Gabriel gives the vision. And notice he says, understand the vision. Understand what I'm talking about. These verses are not put in here just to read over. They're so that we can understand them. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city 
to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with the flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined poured out on the desolate. Now this is an amazing vision that Daniel receives from the angel Gabriel. These verses, this vision is so staggering that scholars for hundreds of years have sort of opened their mouths in awe at what these verses mean because they were written so far in advance before these events have happened. The vision is concerning certain periods of time. So let's first look at the 70 weeks that are mentioned in verse 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. When it says 70 weeks are determined, the literal translation in Hebrew is 70 sevens or 70 periods of seven. You say seven periods of seven what? Well, the word in Hebrew doesn't specify it. It's just 70 sevens. It could be like the word dozen. It could be a dozen bananas. It could be a dozen oranges. It doesn't matter. The word dozen could apply to anything. The word seven here means seven periods of seven. Now, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible I believe correctly translates this. Seventy weeks of years are determined upon your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression and so forth. Seventy weeks, or I believe seventy weeks of years. Now, we live in America, and when we think of a week, we think of it in days, right? That's it. The Jews did not. The Jewish concept of a week either meant days or years. And they thought of a week in terms of either days or years. And they used them both together. And you'll find that in the Old Testament in a few different places. An example, Leviticus 25. God commands Israel to keep the Sabbath. But as you read in context, He's not speaking of the Sabbath day. He's speaking of the sabbatical year. Now this is what happened. God gave Israel a bunch of land. And He said, this is how I want you to farm the land I've given you. I want you to plant and till the land for six years. The seventh year, you don't do anything. You let it lie fallow. You give it its rest. Israel disobeyed God in keeping the Sabbath year or the week of years, as it says in the Old Testament. They did not keep 
the Sabbath year for actually 490 years. Now, how many Sabbath years would that be? 70, exactly. 70 Sabbath years times 7. 490 years God disobeyed, or the children of Israel disobeyed God's command. The Scripture tells us that one of the main reasons they were sent into the captivity that we're reading about is because they failed to keep the sabbatic year. God, in effect, says, you owe me 70 years. And He set them into captivity for exactly 70 years to give the land of Israel the rest because of the abominations and the sins that the children of Israel had committed. That is the reason, according to Second Chronicles, that Israel went into captivity. Now, Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah. So he has this mindset of weeks of years because he understands the reason of the captivity is they failed to keep for 490 years or 70 sets of seven years God's commandment. And he's thinking in that mindset. And then the angel Gabriel comes and he says, 70 weeks, or as the New Revised Standard says, 70 weeks of years or 490 years are determined for your people And notice the six things that would happen then. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Specifically, there are three sections of time that this 70-week or 490-year time period is divided in. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah shall be seven weeks, 49 years, and 62 weeks, 434 years. And then notice verse 26. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many, notice, for one week, a period of seven years. We'll get to that later on. There was a man named Sir Robert Anderson who read this portion of Scripture and he was so impressed with it, he began to calculate the events of 490 years in days. And I'm going to share some of that with you this morning. This has so impressed scholars over the years that... His work in interpreting this chapter has become sort of a hallmark. In fact, he was the head of Scotland Yard in England. And when he finished his book called The Coming Prince, he was knighted by the Queen of England for this work on Daniel chapter 9. Now, look at verse 25. This is where the time clock begins. It says, Know therefore and understand, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks That's 69 weeks total, times 7 years, 483 years. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. Now, to me, this is one of the most amazing verses in the entire book of Scripture. This just blows my mind. I can't even think of enough adjectives to describe how excited I am about this verse. Because this verse gives the exact arrival of the coming of the Messiah to Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and Jerusalem to finish the transgressions and so forth. And verse 25 tells us that from a given point in history, 
there will be a certain prescribed period of time, 483 years, until the Messiah comes to the people. And then it says, the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. Now you might be thinking, okay, which date, which point is he talking about? It says in verse 25, from the going forth or the issuing of a commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, there's only one possible date in history that that could be. In Nehemiah chapter 2, there's a king of the Medes called Artaxerxes. His full name was Artaxerxes Longimanus. And he was that Persian king who allowed the children of Israel to go back and build the city. There were already people starting to repair the temple. But he said, go ahead and build the city and the streets of Jerusalem once again. Now that's a fixed date in history. And the date is March 14th. 445 B.C. I'm not making this sound like a history class intentionally, but you'll see the significance of this. March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes gave the commandment for the children of Israel to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city of Jerusalem once again. It says, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, 483 years. Now, this is divided in two. First, seven weeks and then 62 weeks. I have it in your outline there. First of all, look at the end of verse 25. The street will be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Take a guess. Now, this was written before the fact. But take a guess. How many years do you think it took to build the walls and the streets of Jerusalem? History records it took exactly 49 years to complete the process of building the moat and the street around the city of Jerusalem and the wall. And it was even in troublous times as Malachi tells us. So the first part was fulfilled. 49 years it took to build that. Now notice the beginning of verse 25. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which occurred later, March 14, 445 B.C., until the Messiah, the Prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And then it describes the street and the walls being built. Now, I took a calculator this week just to make sure these figures were correct. And if you go home and you were to calculate this, it would come out to 173,880 days. That is, the period of 483 years is 173,880 days. Now, I want to warn you. Let's say you go home and try the same mathematical principle, 483 years, and you try to come up with days. You'll say, Skip, you're wrong. I've calculated it, and it's 176,295 days. And that's because your reckoning is wrong. I'll tell you why. You would probably take a year based on 365 days, correct? That's the kind of year that we live in. That's called the Julian year. When the Scripture was written... It was not written in 365-day years. It was written in 360-day years. And that's called the Babylonian calendar. The Old and New Testament entirely has 360-day years, not 365 days. So if you were to take 483 years, figure it out, it would be 173,880 days. They say, well, so what? I mean, so far this sounds like a high school math class. What's the point here? The point is this. Know therefore and understand 
from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be 173,880 days. If you were to take March 14th, 445 B.C., when Artaxerxes gave the commandment to do that, and count 173,880 days, you would come to April 6th, 32 A.D., which is a very interesting date. If you were to go into Jerusalem, which this prophecy speaks about, you would find the city crowded full of people, April 6, 32 A.D. And everybody's attention would be looking up toward a mountain called the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, a man is seated on a donkey. Now, before I go any further, you remember there was a prophecy in the Old Testament? Behold, Jerusalem, your king comes to you lowly on a donkey's colt. Prophesied the Messiah would come on a donkey. On April 6th, 32 A.D., exactly 173,880 days later from the issuing of this command, Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and for the first time was acclaimed as the King of the Jews publicly. They said, Hosanna to the Son of David, so much so that the scribes and the Pharisees said, Hush your disciples up. They're speaking blasphemies. And Jesus Christ, exactly 173,880 days later, was proclaimed the king over his people by the followers that were around him. To the exact date, that blows my mind. Not around the same week, to the exact date, April 6, 32 AD. And you say, wait a minute though, we have a problem. The problem is, if Jesus was the Messiah, as it says the Messiah is going to come to his people, He was crucified. They took him outside the city walls and they scorned him as a blasphemer and they crucified him. That's also predicted, verse 26. After 62 weeks, which is 62 and 7, the 69 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. The word cut off means he shall suffer the death penalty. Even the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was predicted after the exact arrival in Jerusalem. The Messiah shall suffer the death penalty, notice, but not for himself. Jesus Christ would be crucified, not for himself. Remember the words of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, it was all in God's plan that the Messiah would come on a specific date and that he would be cut off to die for the sins of the world. It was predicted in the Scripture. Now you realize why Jesus was so angry when he stood on the Mount of Olives about ready to descend on that donkey and he began to weep over the city of Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, if you would have only known, even you, that in this your day the things that made for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus held them accountable for the day that he would arrive in Jerusalem. He he held them accountable for knowing the prophetic scripture. But he said, now they're hidden from your eyes and because of your rejection, your enemies will cast a trench about you. You'll be wiped out by the Romans in 70 AD. And Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem because of their rejection of the Messiah. Although it was predicted in verse 26. Now I want to go through this briefly because I don't want to deal with the 70th week of Daniel. That would take another hour. But... The time clock has now stopped. 69 weeks, 173,880 days have happened. April 6, 32 AD. Messiah was cut off after the 69th week. 
And then it says, The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it will be with the flood. And until the end, which means the end of Jerusalem and the Jewish people, desolations are determined. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, a period of seven years. In the midst of the week, three and a half years, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, we'd have to look through other portions of Scripture, 2 Thessalonians 2, Matthew 24, and so forth, to discover that this is a period called the Great Tribulation Period that has not occurred yet. A period of seven years in which a person will come and make a covenant with the Jewish people for seven years. In the midst of the seven years, he will proclaim himself to be the Messiah, erect a temple in Jerusalem, and demand to be worshipped by the world. That's called the abomination of desolation. Paul and Jesus looked forward to it as being fulfilled during the Great Tribulation period. Now, between the 69th and 70th week, there is a gap, and you and I are living in that gap. It's called the church age or the age of grace. The time clock has stopped. It will resume again at that last seven-year period upon the earth, the Great Tribulation period. But until then, God is giving the world a chance. All of the Gentiles, that is people who are not Jews like you and me, to come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, to know Him as our personal Savior. Now, we've covered the prayer of Daniel and the prophecies. Let's look at practical pointers on both of these. Now, this is where I'd like you to take some notes so that you can take home and this study can be practical to you. First of all, practical principles concerning Daniel's prayer life. As we said, prayer is a privilege. And Daniel esteemed that privilege highly. Think of prayer as a telephone. That is, when you pray to God, that's like the mouthpiece. You're speaking into it. When you read the Word of God, that's like the earpiece. God speaks back to you. You would never call up someone and just put the earpiece down and just yell or continuously talk into the mouthpiece and hang up. That'd be an insulting conversation. Neither would you just pick up the uh, telephone and listen and not say anything. And so prayer and Bible study should be hand in hand, and I should, I believe it should be every day, where you take a portion of Scripture, you go through it, you meditate on it, and you pray according to those promises that you find written in it. It's a beautiful combination. Remember that Daniel exercised more influence over national affairs because of his prayer life than even the rulers and the leaders. God revealed to Daniel the secrets of the future. And he revealed the dreams to Daniel. Daniel on his knees was more powerful than the king upon his throne because prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Now the lesson is this. You and I can have a say-so in our government, in our society, in our community, in our nation. Not only by voting, but also by prayer. Let's quit complaining all the time about the condition of our nation and take it to prayer. Let's complain before God and ask God to change some of those things and bring revival in the community and bring revival in the nation. Do what Daniel did. Understand what the Word says and pray and ask God to forgive the nation. Go home and write the struggles that you have with your prayer life. Be honest before God. You don't have to show your paper to your wife or your children. 
Write the struggles and the tough, how hard it is for you to pray and why. Why do you think it is? And ask yourself this question, does prayer matter? I mean, does it really matter? Because if it really mattered, we'd be doing it quite a bit. Your struggles and does prayer really matter? And ask yourself, does God reveal things to me when I pray? Remember, the scripture says God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, not of those that come and casually knock. But those who diligently seek him, Daniel was a diligent seeker and his prayer and Bible study opened the door to revelation from God. I'm not speaking, saying that you're going to get necessarily visions for the rest of the United States, but God will reveal his love, his grace and his secrets to you. Now, concerning prophecy, something very practical. First of all, I hope you've realized this morning that this book is a reliable book. That even before the Messiah was born, even while they were in captivity, God said that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes will be 173,880 days. From March 14th, 445 B.C. to April 6th, 32 A.D., that exact time span, Jesus came into Jerusalem and then was cut off and crucified. This book is reliable. You can bank on God's promises. You can rely upon God. You can trust in the Lord. And I'll tell you the truth. As I was studying this this week, I was getting goosebumps on my arm just thinking about how accurate this book is. It's not just a bunch of myths and fables written by some old men. It was written by God. And when God promises something to me, I know He's going to keep it. God keeps all of His appointments. God kept his appointment with Israel concerning the Messiah. And when you read a promise in the scripture, God will make it good in your life. When God promises you something, you don't have to worry. God is at your side. God knows the times and the seasons and God will make it good. Also, this is a lesson not only in the liability of scripture, but in the omniscience of God. That is, God knows the end from the beginning. God knows your life. You know that your life is all plotted out this morning in the mind of God. If you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, God has a plan and a purpose. The scripture says we live our life as a tale that has been told. And you know what? I can't think of anything more exciting than that. God knows my future. It makes life like an adventure story. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. And that's comforting. And I want you to take comfort in that today. Take comfort in the God that you serve. The God that loves you was the one who created the universe. In fact, the Bible says that God measures the universe with the span of his hand. Now, if God measures the universe with the span of his hand and the scripture says underneath you are his everlasting arms, you're pretty secure, aren't you? God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the how many weeks are determined in your life like he knew in the lives of the children of Israel. And finally, I pray that you'll walk away this morning with a great, great appreciation of the Scripture. And when you look at this book every morning when you get up and you're tempted to say, I'm too busy, I don't want to get into this, I've got so much to do today, God knows my heart. To know that the book you're holding is not just a book written by 40 authors who are just men, but it was written by the Holy Spirit to you. It's God's love letter to you. And you begin to approach the Scripture with more of a reverence than you ever have before. In fact, I'd like you to listen to this. I found this this week concerning the Scripture. 
It's called When You Read the Bible Through. I suppose I knew my Bible, reading piecemeal, hit or miss. Now a bit of John or Matthew and a snatch of Genesis. Certain chapter of Isaiah, certain Psalms, the 23rd. Twelfth of Romans, first of Proverbs. Yes, I thought I knew the word. But I found that thorough reading was a different thing to do. And the way was unfamiliar when I read the Bible through. You who like to play at Bible, dip and dabble here and there, just before you kneel a weary and yawn through a hurried prayer, you who treat the crown of writings as you treat no other book, just a paragraph disjointed, just a crude, impatient look, try a worthier procedure. Try a broad and steady view. You will kneel in very rapture when you read the Bible through. This book is powerful. It's got all of the answers you need. Learn to respect it as that. It is without error. It is God's love letter to you. And finally, a word to some of you who might not know Jesus Christ today. I want to encourage you to get into the plan that God has for your life. God wants to have your life planned and plotted out. You have got to get into the plan, even as Daniel received this vision from God. God wants you to receive a plan for your life. Get in touch with the plan that God has for you. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Let God control your life. God knows the dates. And you know what? You don't. You don't know how many days ahead or weeks of years you had left of your life. Whether you'll live a good long life or whether you'll leave today, and this will be the last day on earth. I don't say that to scare you. That's reality. God knows the times and the seasons and dates of your life. Give your life to Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we have studied in Daniel, You commanded Him to know and understand this incredible prophecy. You said that after the 70 weeks are completed, there would be an end of transgressions, reconciliation for iniquity. And truly, Jesus Christ did that on the cross. But Lord, we're waiting for Him to come back the second time to seal up the vision and prophecy, anoint the Most Holy, and fulfill the rest of this prophecy. But Lord, we look with awe at Your Scripture today. Lord, that You aren't approximate, You're exact, You're detailed. And we're amazed at that today, Lord. Father, I pray that we would dare to be Daniels. Seek the Lord while we have breath. Seek Him in prayer. And have that beautiful combination of prayer and the Word every single day. And Father, we pray that we would learn to respect this crown of writings. Know that You've given it to us, Lord, and that You're omniscient. And Father, we also pray for those this morning who don't know You, who have maybe looked at the Bible very skeptically. And Father, I pray today that You'd bring them to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, something that is an absolute. And for those of you who are here this morning who don't know Jesus Christ. If you would like to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ today, come into a relationship that is absolute and reliable, I'd like to help you in that. First of all, if you want to do that, I'd like you to raise up your hand. If you want to know Jesus Christ today, don't be afraid. Raise up your hand if you want to know Him today. Establish a relationship with God. If you want to know Jesus Christ today, Christians, just begin to pray for those around you. Do you want to know an unfailing God that you can trust in? 
Raise up your hand. Don't be afraid. God bless you too over here. Anyone else? Do you want to meet the King of Kings? God bless you in the back. It's the wisest step you could ever make is today. God is facing you with eternity. God knows your life planned out in advance. Give your life to Him today. If you want to know Him, raise up your hand. God loves you. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank You that You brought everyone in here today, Father, to hear Your Word. And again, we're amazed at it, Lord. That it's simple, but yet it's, it's profound, Lord. It's technical. And we thank You for that dual nature. 